three Sundays. I was away for about two weeks, and we're back from vacation, and it was one of the best vacations I've had in a long time. It's really hard to coordinate vacations between Heather's work schedule, my work schedule, kids' school schedule, and although this wasn't a full vacation because we go down to the West Coast so that Heather can teach, and while the rest of our family vacations, it was still a really, really rich time. We rented out an Airbnb, kind of like a little ranch, about three kilometers from the U.S. border, just in that kind of horse area of Langley. There's some pictures here. Rocky, uh, I kind of took care of Rocky all day on the ranch. I was kind of a, a rancher for two weeks, and um, which meant a lot of playing. There were, uh, if we go to the next slide, there was some, um, yeah, there was two border collies there, which kept Rocky busy. It's hard for a Boston Terrier to keep up with a border collie, collie but he did really, really well. And then they, our hosts were awesome. They were there. They lived in the basement, and we had the upstairs. And then they had horses, and our kids got to groom the horses and feed the horses and ride on the horses. It was super fun. There's Avery, and there's Braden, and next we got Kara. Yeah, it was really, really a wonderful time. And I really had to fight hard to rest. Um, I love to work. I love my job. My job is one where... There's always something to do, always something to read, always someone to in need of something, always an opportunity that's either present or just on the horizon. And so I really went into these two weeks saying, God, I just got to learn how to not be okay with not being productive every day. And the first few days were kind of shaky and turbulent, but I really settled into that rhythm of just dropping Heather and the kids off at the school, coming back with Rocky and just walking and praying and listening to podcasts and reading stuff that I wouldn't normally feel like I have the margins to read. And it was just really, really refreshing. And um, one of the things during my time that I did a lot of is listening to podcasts while I was walking. And um, I started one when I came back. I thought, I really like the format of podcasts. A lot of people use them as they're doing housework or going for walks or just hanging around, driving in a car. And I started one just a little just one episode so far, but I'm going to try and hopefully drop a short episode every week or two. And this is really a format for me that just allows me to kind of maybe follow up on a Sunday message, share things that God is teaching me in a more kind of uh, unpolished, unvarnished, in-process sort of thing. So there is a link to the podcast in the Friday Summit newsletter if you're interested in subscribing and tagging along, but you can also just probably Google it and at some point it'll come up. I don't know if the algorithm has picked that up yet, but it will... Um, soon. And then lastly, as you can see, I uh, decided over a vacation to start, I don't know if it was start growing a beard or just too lazy to shave. It's kind of the same thing. And then I just kept it going. And uh, I kind of, I'm kind of excited because we're going to be wrapping up the Ephesians series in a few weeks. And then I'm going to do another quick series on vision for our church for the next three to five years. And then we're going to go through the book of Genesis and then we'll go through Exodus, and by the time we get to Exodus 20, my facial hair will be appropriately grown in for an awesome mosaic Ten Commandments message, because that's how much time I need to actually grow facial hair. I'm like a tiny child, and so I'm going to need like a three-year outlay. Oh, man. Okay, we are in the book of Ephesians. We're coming to the end of the book. It's a short book, but it provides a really good synopsis of the key themes of the Christian life. First half, what God has done for us, what we have because of grace. Second half, how do we live in response to that? Not from a place of earning, but from a place of having received God's grace. Now, how should we live? And Paul ends chapter 6 with this final push 
to be strong in the Lord, and he uses this military metaphor of putting on the armor of God. So I'm going to invite Kara up, and she's going to read Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18, and then because I'm going to teach through a complementary passage, we're going to read that passage also, which is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying on for all the Lord's people. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that, is, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Thank you. So what gets the, most of the attention in Ephesians 6 is the armor of God. Some of your Bibles might even have that as kind of the heading for that section. The armor of God is that which Paul emphasizes throughout this passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 6. The armor of God is what allows us to stand firm. And the idea there is that we're putting on this armor because he's saying as a Christian community, you have to understand individually and as in your marriages and in your core relationships and as a church, you are going to be under attack from anti-God spiritual forces, satanic forces. And so you need armor to protect yourself. And this armor allows you to stand firm. And the idea is that there's going to be a, an onslaught. It's going to come in waves. But if you wear the armor, what it allows you to do is to stand firm, that those forces will not overcome you. You have access to a power that allows you to stand uh, and withstand the attacks of kind of the worst that uh, satanic forces can bring to bear against you. So that's the armor of God. But what I want to talk about this morning is kind of the tail end of Ephesians 6 and then what uh, Paul makes a little bit more explicit in his second letter to the Corinthians is the armory of God. And the armory is where you get weapons out of. And weapons are used in an offensive capacity. So the armor of God is really about how to, what are the skills and habits that we need to integrate into our lives so that we can withstand attack, but then there are weapons that we are to use in order to go on the offense. And so when I talked about the armor of God, I said, really, if you look at the things that are being highlighted there, sharing the gospel, truth, righteousness, uh, the helmet of salvation, this is just discipleship. 
uh, I think the Holy Spirit through Paul is just helping Christians to understand spiritual warfare isn't some fantastical, um, hyper-spiritual activities that are disconnected from everyday disciplines like giving and serving and walking in truth and dwelling on uh, the nature of our salvation and sharing the gospel. Those things are the armor. When you participate actively in everyday Christian life and you grow in holiness, that is you putting on the armor. But here he says the armory of God is something, and, and sorry, and what discipleship allows you to do is to stand firm. The armory of God allows us to take ground against the enemy. Now, I know as Canadians, and probably, well, as Canadians, warfare language, probably for most people, is a little uncomfortable. We maybe associate that more with the U.S. Canada has a stronger kind of peacekeeping um, ethos and culture. But Paul is teaching these ideas in a context where the military might around the Christian community, which is the Roman Empire, was the largest um, and maybe you could argue the most uh, well-oiled and brutal war machine that had ever been created to that point. And Paul is pointing to that and saying, there's, there's a gospel lesson in here for us in terms of how we need to understand our faith. That just like this army is strong and can withstand all attacks from the outside, we can in Christ as well. And just like this army expands and takes ground against its enemies, we can do the same for the spiritual enemies that stand against God. So this morning what I want to talk about is kind of three things that emerge out of these two passages for me, which is what we fight, how we fight, and why we fight. I think these are really, really important for us to not just be introduced to, but really dwell and meditate on and chew over what we fight, how we fight, and why we fight. So number one, what do we fight? We talked about about this before, but it bears repeating because it's very, very important for us to get clear on this. Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So, our struggle is not ultimately against other people. And that's not Paul saying, we're not going to face opposition from other people. We obviously are. Paul faced persecution, the Christians faced persecution, that persecution comes through people and institutions and unjust laws. Paul is saying life is a battle, and one of the things that you will be tempted to believe, and it's one of sort of the, um, one of the tools of, of the Satan, the, the great accuser, will be to tempt you into thinking that your real enemy is the other person over there, the pagan Roman, or Caesar himself, or this person in your community. People are the enemy. And if you could just get rid of that person, then everything would be fine, because they're the root of it all. But he's saying, no, we, and he actually says, I think it's in Corinthians, where he says, we no longer regard people from a human point of view. A human point of view leans into good guys, bad guys. And while we recognize that everybody can do good deeds and bad deeds and, the, and there are evil doers, Paul wants to make sure this church understands that the fight we're talking about isn't a fight against this particular faction of people, whether that faction is an ethnicity, whether it's a um, particular religious commitment or worldview commitment, 
people are not our enemy. Our enemy, capital E, the things that we're actually battling against are, number one, satanic forces. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world or this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Heavenly realms not necessarily meaning up, up, far away, up there somewhere, but the heavenly realms, the unseen realm around us. That's our enemy. Other people are not our enemies. So all this warfare language is meant to be brought to bear against Satan and satanic forces, but also satanic ideas. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments, and the Greek word there is reasonings or ways of thinking, and every pretension, and that word means kind of an arrogant, a posture of arrogance, or a high arrogance, a lifted up, ideas that assert themselves as being superior to the knowledge of God, these ideas that set themselves, that lift themselves up against the knowledge of God. So our real enemy is satanic forces and satanic ideas. Now that second part I'm using very, very intentionally to be (laughs) provocative, but I'm also using it in a technical sense of the word. What I don't mean by satanic ideas is that every idea that's out there that doesn't have sort of a a Christian stamp on it or isn't delivered with certain Christian lingo is satanic. What I mean is there are ideas. What's the root of a satanic idea? The root of, uh, from a theological point of view, the root of a satanic idea is you can live how you want and you don't need to worry about God. Has God really said? I mean, that's the nature of the first temptation. Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? You just trust yourself. You, um, You trust in your own wisdom. You trust in your own understanding. You don't have to submit to the authority of a higher revelation or a higher king. And so Paul is saying what we do, the nature of Christian warfare, is to confront and battle against ideas that are presented in such a way that make no reference to our need for God's grace and love and mercy and Christ's redemption in our lives. Now, again, if I was talking to someone who wasn't a a, a believer and they were telling me their worldview, I wouldn't say, wow, that's, that's a pretty satanic worldview you have there. Because what they're thinking when I say that is that they're like a Satan worshiper and they're saying, no, I'm just a reasonable person who's trying to think through ideas and this is my worldview. So I'm using this as a way to say, in a very technical way, Paul is saying, our enemy, again, isn't people. It's against sometimes the ideas that keep people trapped, the ideas that enslave people, the delusions that you can move through this life and you get to determine what's right and wrong for yourself. You get to, in a sense, or humans, or human reasoning, gets to sit on the throne of authority. And Paul is saying that at its core, while I might not use that language in parlance, that's a satanic idea where kind of like it's you do you to the extreme, where you do you with no reference to the great I am that I am. And so the ideal here, Paul is making very clear, is that the way we go to battle, the way we go to war in the world, is by seeking to love people and by seeking to affirm the uh, God-given image-bearingness that they have within themselves while at the same time being willing to confront ideas that are 
not aligned to God's truth. And of course, that process looks very different if it's someone very close to you with a high trust relationship versus someone at work. Obviously, you're not going to just bring that into the workplace. But the principle, again, that I really want you to hear that I think the text drives us towards is to be very, very careful not to see people as the enemy, people who support this political allegiance, people who are committed to this worldview, people who um, use this particular language, people from this part of the world, that we, we never try and, we, uh, we resist the temptation to demonize people, but we're also courageous within the church and outside the church to say, mm, these are ideas that need to be confronted because they're either in a small way or in a big way not aligned to the truth of the gospel. And so what are we fighting? We don't fight people. And just to make sure this is really, really clear, because it hasn't always been clear in the history of the church, that means that maybe outside of a defensive posture, Christians are, it is never justified for a Christian to use violence, intimidation, force to spread the faith. There's some religion, you know, there's certain um, subsects of Islam who would say that is a valid way to spread the Islamic faith. Um, but within Christianity, and within this passage in particular, it gives no quarter to that. Because our battle is against, isn't against flesh and blood. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, in terms of how we fight, he makes it very clear. We live in the world. We're in Ephesus. Here we are. Here we are in Corinth. Like, we're, we're, we're in the world. But, and we're waging war. But we're not waging war in the same way that the world does. And the world is a catchphrase that basically means the patterns of life when we're disconnected from God and God's truth. So it doesn't mean creation. That just refers to what, all the good things that God has made. But world or worldliness refers to patterns of life that are disconnected from God's truth. And Paul looks around him in this Roman Empire, and the Spirit, spirit inspires him to say, yeah, you are at war. You do have an enemy, but it's not people... And the way that we win the battle isn't by literally um, seeking to give people the love of Jesus between the eyes, right, or else. It's not threat. It's not intimidation. It's not warfare. There's no justification. Now, there's a whole another conversation there in terms of just war and when is it a Christian's responsibility to intervene, maybe even violently, in order to prevent a greater massacre happening somewhere else or in a defensive posture, but what Paul is thinking through here is he just wants to establish that the base default of Christians towards people who disagree with them is to not be tempted to say, oh, they're the enemy, they're scum, they're, um, they, they need to be dealt with, and then somehow rationalizing in your mind using worldly methodology, methodologies, primarily violence, as a way to say, oh, that's the way we're going to solve it. And think about how tempting that would have been for the early Christians who have this huge political and military um, structure around them in Rome and saying, man, if we could just create a violent revolution and then just give back to Rome the way they've been giving it to us, if we could militarily overthrow Rome, we could totally establish the kingdom of God. Then we'd be in charge. We could do it top down. We could make people love Jesus. That would be, you can see the slippery slope, right? I mean, the zealots already had that within the Jewish framework. That was the zealots' way of establishing the kingdom of God. And Paul says the way the kingdom of God is established 
is by putting on the armor of God, righteousness, truth, sharing the gospel, and making use of the armory of God, which we'll get to in a second. So Christians are expected to fight, but there's also a right way and a wrong way to fight. So using literal weapons of war, violence, intimidation, off the table. That's not the way we spread our faith. That's not the way that we seek to glorify God. That's not even close to our first or second or tertiary attempt to engage with even our enemies. We're called to love our enemies and to overcome uh, evil with good. But also, it's not just about violence and intimidation. It's all, all sinful methodologies, all worldly methodologies. So for some Christians, they're like, well, the ends kind of justify the, 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 the means, or the means justify the ends. So, and I see this all the time online. I'll slander people online. I'll misrepresent someone's position. I will use dehumanizing language. I'll talk about people as demons, right? Um, instead of maybe saying, I think that idea is really terrible or even demonic. They'll, they'll call the person demonic. Snarkiness, on, online harassment, bullying, right? There are some people who would say, well, if I do that in Jesus' name, that's kind of like a righteous turn of how I'm doing that. And it's like, no, we don't use the weapons of this world, literal weapons or figurative weapons. Means and ends are inseparable. If we want to glorify God and love our neighbor, then we have to work really hard at making sure the way that we confront these ideas, the way that we engage our capital E enemy, spiritual forces, and wrong ideas, we really want people to feel like we're not attacking them that we're not demeaning them, that we're not dismissing them or dehumanizing them. And instead, what we're to use is this, these two primary weapons of the word of God and prayer to confront wrong ideas. So the first weapon, the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, this will be familiar to a lot of us. The word of God is living and active. It's alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And then prayer, Ephesians 10.18, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. And so the Bible becomes this source of power that as we share it, and again, I'm not talking about showing up in your workplace and then in the middle of your workday opening up your Bible and starting to read scripture. I'm talking about learning scripture yourself, having it change you, and then in context where there's high trust and people are asking you to share your faith, you're sharing with them. That maybe even you're inviting them into a Bible study or to read a book together. But you're using the weapon of the word of God gently so that God can do heart surgery, right? And you're not beating people over the head with scripture. That, you know, the Bible's a weapon, but not the literal Bible. Don't literally beat people over the head with it right? We're bringing the word of God and God's truth to bear in a way that hopefully people can be responsive to. And we're praying all kinds of prayer, praying through all different uh, channels as we're walking, as we're coming and going, prayers of, um, that are praying the scriptures over people, over particular situations, letting scripture change how we pray, the language that we use. James 5, 6 says that the prayer of a righteous person is really powerful and effective. So what are we fighting? We're fighting satanic forces and satanic ideas. 
We're not fighting people. How do we fight? We fight through the word of God and through prayer. We don't fight by using our words to cut down people. We don't fight by using weapons to um, literally bring to bear violence on other people. We are engaged in a battle. We are engaged in in a war. You are called to engage that war as an individual Christian, but you've got to learn how to fight the right way in a way that glorifies God. Why do we fight? 2 Corinthians 10.3 So that we can take every thought or every idea captive and make it obedient to Christ. That's a really high calling. The idea there is that we want to be fighting these bad ideas and conforming them into God's truth. Now again, I'm very sensitized to the fact that in a relativistic age, that statement sounds really presumptuous. Who are you to say what God's truth is? Isn't that just your interpretation? There's all kinds of different um, interpretations of particular Bible passages. Yeah, there's some weeds to get into there, and we've been conditioned as a culture and a, in a postmodern context to be suspicious of any and all truth claims. But this would be one passage that pretty clearly is challenging us as 21st century Kootenai Christians to say, There is a way of aligning ideas to God's truth and making it obedient to Christ. That there is um, a right way to understand God's truth and to live it out. And because there's a right way, we can identify wrong ways within the church and outside the church of how to live, of who God is, who we are, how we're called to live. And then we uh, we can, with grace and with humility and love, but also passion and conviction, we can bring God's truth to bear and challenge ourselves to, great, to more faithfully conform to God's truth, challenge each other as Christians, and then invite the outside world to do so the same in recognition that Jesus is Lord. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, when you sing these songs, what you're not saying is, I like Jesus, Jesus works for me, and, but there's lots of different lords that are out there that are like equally valid. When you say Jesus is Lord and you put the capital on the L, what you're saying is he is the logos, he is the source, he is, before, he is the everlasting one, he is the point of history, he is the source of truth. And while we're obviously going to hold all truth claims carefully and humbly, we don't want to fall into the satanic idea that no one really has a right to say what's true or not. Like it's just, it's all just totally relative. Who can say, Right? That's not courageous theology. That's not biblical theology. But it's kind of where our culture encourages us to go generally and definitely encourages the church to go. Jeff, you believe whatever you want about Jesus, that's great. You just keep it private. Like, you, just, you, just, you do you. I don't care. I think it's dumb. But as long as you don't bring that idea to bear in public life, I'm totally comfortable with that. Well, if Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth then I have a responsibility as a Christian to bring that truth to bear in public life as a citizen, like Paul did, like other Christians did. Now, there's a a wise, winsome way to do that, and there's an annoying, um, offsetting, off-putting way to do that. So hopefully I grow in my ability to do it wisely. But what I will not allow people to do in my life is silence me through this idea that, well, that's just your interpretation, so you should just kind of keep that to yourself. We're called to know God's truth and grow in God's truth, 
to hold that truth humbly because our understanding might be limited, but we're to engage all the ideas that we come into contact with so that we can make them obedient to Christ. Here's a, here's a quote that I came across that I thought was a good summary. This commentator said, Paul wasn't content to offer people just a new religious experience, just another option to be added to the rich pluralism his world already knew. He was determined to confront human-made systems of thought which, though they usually contained some glimmers of truth, actually led people away from the knowledge of God rather than towards God. And I like what he says there in terms of even though they did maybe contain some glimmer of truth, and that's really important that we understand that when we confront ideas, one of the starting points that I try and look for when I'm in some of these conversations with people is not to just see it as I'm completely right, they're completely wrong, right? I come with humility on my part, and I also look for that glimmer, that kernel of truth which, or motive that I can really latch onto and say, you know what? Just as a start, I want to say I really like that I really hear your heart for justice in this issue, and I appreciate that. And so, and I want to commend that. I think where we're going to maybe differ and where I want to push back is what justice looks like, what's the shape of justice and the texture of justice and the trajectory of justice. But I love that you are serious about engaging this idea, right? So I'm going to maybe confront someone's ideas, allow them to confront mine, but I want to look for something there that says that, again, it makes it really clear that I'm not just attacking the person, that I'm seeking to understand where they're coming from so that I can say, I love you, I care about you, I'm listening to you. If what I hear you saying is this, I can definitely affirm this. This is really, really cool. But let's talk about this idea or the consequences of that idea. So here are just some pastoral and personal applications for us coming out of this. We are called to fight in battle. And that means, and as Canadians, this is tough, depending on your personality. It's another layer of toughness. But confrontation in the Christian life is inevitable. We are called to confront false ideas, destructive ideas. That's necessary as a disciple of Jesus. You don't get to just say, I'm going to love God, heart, soul, strength. Awesome. We've got to bring our mind and our worldview fully to bear on things. And um, the temptation for me, if I'm honest, a lot of the time is to avoid confrontation because I think things will go better for me overall, and certainly with that person, if I avoid that conversation or going there with that person. And I read a, a howitzer of an article. I put it in the summit. It was passed along to me by a friend. I've written it a few times. And the article is called How Niceness Weakens Our Witness. And it's one of the better articles that I've read in a, in a long time. It was, it was a real sword-piercing uh, Holy Spirit moment for me, and I made it a source of my reflection over the last week. And the central premise is this. There's a big difference between being nice and being kind. And our culture has raised niceness to the level of virtue. And niceness often being described as, essentially, don't be honest with the other person for the sake of the relationship. Just be nice. And in the parsing out of the difference between being nice and kind, I found myself really convicted of how often my being nice to other people is really just rooted in fear. I'm scared of where the confrontation's going to go. 
in my most courageous moments, I would say this, but I'm scared to because blank. And it's an excellent article, and I'm going to be talking about it on one of the future episodes of the podcast because I did some other research. But again, confrontation is inevitable. And maybe a year ago, I, I even would have said, it's a good thing to try and be nice. But now I want to be more precise in my language and to say, Christians, we are called to be kind. And kind means holding together the duality of, like Jesus, holding grace and truth together. And that's hard to do. But in John's gospel, he opens with saying, you know, um, grace and truth came in Jesus. The perfect embodiment. You can't read the gospels and conclude Jesus was nice. It's not an adjective anyone's going to use of Jesus. His inner circle, the crowds, anybody. No one's going to say, that's a nice guy. Because that implies he's placating to all the people around him. But he had a loving kindness, a Hebrew word, hesed, which pierced people, but also through that piercing, healed them and brought them into God's truth. So we're called to fight. There is going to be a battle there. And part of that battle is recognizing if there is a war going on and I'm called to take up armory, I've got to lay down maybe the idol of niceness. And I have to grow in courage. I need to grow in saying, God, make me a person of grace and truth. And lastly, I would say, and I thought about this a lot too, because in my earlier days of hearing about this and, and wanting to sort of go to war for Jesus and take thoughts captive, and I kind of glossed over 2 Corinthians 10.3. The point of all of this is to take these, these ideas captive and make them obedient to Christ. The end goal of all of this is obedience to Jesus. And why that was important to me this week was because it set a question in my heart that I think is very important for me, especially as a mind type, especially as someone who likes to argue and likes to argue about theology and likes to win arguments about theology. The question is, am I seeking, what's my goal in all of this conversation, all of these interactions, all of these, all of these engagements? Is my goal to be righteous or just to be right? it's easy for me to be right. I can win arguments. Right? I have enough training that I can maybe outmaneuver most people in this room as it comes to dropping uh, certain theological names and, and, and concepts and, and uh, scriptural verses. And I could win the arguments. But Paul's vision is that in confronting people, we're seeking to come together with them and making these ideas obedient to Jesus, meaning that we're living into greater obedience. And I bet you, if I'm honest with myself, the first, who knows how long, I mean, conservatively, 10 to 15 years, it was much more important for me as a Christian to be right. And I kind of forgot that the point of all this is to grow into the righteousness of Christ, which means humility, which means love, which means grace. But I was so passionate about God's truth and that got dovetailed with really crooked, sinful tendencies in me to want to be right, be on top, win the argument, which is much more about my own ego, right, than it wasn't about ultimately pointing people towards Jesus. And I really realized that it's very dangerous, it can be very dangerous, to wield the armory of God, Scripture and prayer, when you're not staying connected to the commander. Right? It's very easy to memorize some Bible verses, 
and pray against people and start using the Bible against people and they get caught up in that drama and those cycles of fight and it kind of feels good, it feels like something's happening. We can mistake confrontation and the drama that comes from that is just something that's always good. Oh, they, I, 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 it's just because I'm locked in a spiritual battle with this person. It's like, no, you're just a jerk. That's why you're experiencing this. There's relational tension that you're creating. And that's not the fruit of the spirit engaging in this situation. That's just the fruit of your worldly, fleshly, sinful desire to try and win the argument, get on top, dominate the other person, intimidate them, demean them, kind of philosophically or theologically um, suppress them down to a place where they're like, fine, you win, whatever. I know it's a high and holy calling and it's challenging, but our desire should always be like Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus saying, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to teach you. I want God to open up the scriptures to both of us so that we both grow in our obedience to Christ. And so that would be my closing thought this morning is that recognize that going to war for God means that we have to make sure that we're going to war with God and allowing God to do the heart surgery and the training that we continually need, need not just in a certain phase of our life, so that we're using uh, the weapons that he has given us in a way that actually glorifies him and brings life to those around us. So let's pray to that end. God, we thank you for armor that protects us and also for weapons that allow us to take ground in the spiritual battle that's happening all around us. God, for some of us, this idea just falls flat. Their experience of life isn't one of warfare. And it just seems strange and very alien and foreign, God. And yet your um, word tells us that outside of your revelation, we can be blinded to these things. So I pray that you would open up our eyes to recognize that we are in a battle, God. But that we would never be tempted into believing the lie that people are our enemy. We're fighting for people, not against them. And help us to fight well by holding together grace and truth and by bringing your truth and prayer to bear on their lives. Help us to love like you loved. Help us to confront like you confronted. Help us to be willing to ultimately self-sacrifice ourselves so that other people see in us and in our posture a humble expression of the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Help us to go to war, God. Give us victory in this war, but may the victory be uh, hearts and minds that are increasingly conformed to a desire to love you and to fall in alignment with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.